It is deep regret that I must report that the great magician, actor, bibliophile, and writer Ricky Jay has passed away. As of this recording, he passed away November 24th, 2018, which was yesterday as I'm recording this. Known professionally as Ricky Jay, he was a great magician. Known for many roles in movies, television, uh, stage. It just it goes on and on. You know, I've I've never personally met him, um, and I, but I know people who have, and everyone, you know, agrees that he was a a character, a very nice and warm man who uh, never failed to reach out to anyone who asked for advice. Uh, his his uh, career goes back decades. He was, uh, you know, trained by the great Di Vernon. You know, he was on the, Car- the Johnny Carson Tonight Show as early as October 26, 1970. He appeared in uh, many, many TV series like Simon Simon, uh, Arsenio, <laughs> uh, The Late Show with David Letterman. American Masters, The Late Show, Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of The X-Files, The Great Malini, a classic. I think I will watch that tonight. Deadwood, Mythbusters, 60 Minutes, The Simpsons, Teen Titans Go. Um, the Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon uh, in movies like House of Games, Homicide, uh, Boogie Nights, Tomorrow Never Dies, the James Bond movie, Magnolia, Heartbreakers, Heist, um, you know, The Brothers Bloom, Automatic Hate, you know, Theater, The Midnight, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, and many uh, performances on stage and television. He's also a prolific writer. Uh, he's, he's known for card throwing, where he could throw with very uh, great strength and precision playing cards into objects across a great distance it's very sad to report Ricky Jay has passed away and we dedicate this episode which is about vampires to him because a great magician never dies he is ever living Welcome back to another episode of Magic and Murder. I'm Vince. And I'm Vlad. And it's a pleasure to have you back for, what, our third episode? I believe it is. Yes, I, th- I we are. We would like to do uh, more episodes if you really enjoy doing these shows. You know, I'm sure you've heard this before in the opener and, and during the, the break in the last episode, if you're a regular listener. But it would really help out if you write a, you know, a nice review for us or, or at least give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast source like itunes or stitcher 
or, or Podbean or wherever you are listening to our podcast at. And remember, if you would like to help out, you know, I cannot put enough emphasis on the fact that although this is always free to listen to, it's not free to make. And if you would like to help us out, go to anchor.fm slash magic and murder. And you can, you know, leave us a dollar a month or something, whatever you can afford, you know, help us out. We appreciate any accolades or donations, no matter how big or small. That's correct. Yes. Anything helps out. You know, we appreciate our listeners very much. And once again, uh, if you, here's an interesting thing. I don't know if I even told Vlad about this. If you download the Anchor app, you can be a part of our show. You can actually leave a voice message for us with a question. Just kind of log in, you know, just go to whatever you're, you have, iTunes or or uh, your Android store, uh, Google Play, and download the Anchor app for anchor.fm. Find our podcast and leave us a message. Say, t- Tell us what you think of the show, how we can make it better. Uh, tell us uh, if there's any topic you would like us to do research on. We have people that will look stuff up for us. We both have impressive libraries beyond the internet, trust me. And we will do, we will research any topic that you suggest, uh, you know, as much as we can, you know, at, to an expert level. So please download the Anchor app, uh, leave a message, or just visit us on Facebook or send us an email. Or go to omnifringeradio.com and send us a message. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt if anybody that visits our abodes or lairs, uh, when they walk in and see all the books we have, whether or not we do indeed read. That's correct. Yes, the uh, I have a, a, a collection of nearly a thousand books uh, in the hundreds, actually, and I and I'm very proud to announce I've and I've told by this already. I have com- I will nearly have completed within only a couple of days my trifecta of uh, strange book collections. I've uh, you know since the 1980s, in which I pretty much grew up in. I have always desired to have Mysteries of the Unknown. Now, I've completed that collection a few years ago. I was very excited to do that. Shortly thereafter, I've completed my collection of the book series Man, Myth, and Magic. So there's a little backstory for those who don't know. Mysteries of the Unknown is a time-life hard book collection. It covers every gambit of the paranormal, supernatural, myth, and legends from everything from uh, Atlantis to UFOs and beyond. The Man, Myth, and Magic series covers uh, these similar legends and myths, but more from an anthropological point of view. And that started out as sort of a, I believe it was weekly newsstand publication where you'd have to run out and attempt, attempt, and I say attempt to find it because it seemed like each newsstand might only get one or two copies of this magazine. So if you were trying to complete the entire collection, you had to be there really early when the person dropped off the publications and sort of sift through all the things to, to get the missing volume. That is correct. But at some point, at some point, they actually put them into hardback volumes, which was very exciting for me. Because everybody probably was like, man, I wished I could have completed this, but I'm missing these issues. <laughs> so. Yep. Now, finally, my third collection, because a trifecta is not a trifecta without three select, you know, uh, things to talk about, <clears throat> is The Enchanted World, once again by Time Life Books. 
And it is more about uh, fables and legends and myths as opposed to uh, the other series, which have a more, uh, I guess, accurate or realistic interpretation of these things. Uh, Chanted Worlds covers uh, Arthurian legends, uh, nightmare stories, you know, everything in between. It has a, there's a, actually a book on Christmas, which will come in handy in a few weeks. <laughs> Man, I can't believe that stuck up on us like that. Yeah. Um, there's a book on ghosts and specifically and uh, creatures of the night, which is a good segue into our main topic of the show. Indeed. Yeah, so this, this uh, week, this particular episode, will be focusing on, I think, would it, would it be too bold for me to say that is your favorite topic to talk about? Well, it's a, it's a topic that's close to my heart. <laughs> that's right. So this week we'll be discussing specifically vampires, but creatures of the night in general. Vlad, uh, since this is a topic that it is very close to your heart, uh, would you like to open up on it? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge topic, so I think what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to separate the discussion into folklore, myth, and legend in the beginning, and then we'll ease into literature, and then to finish it off, I think probably we can do, you know, it would take five minutes to talk about the video games, but we'll ease into film. Uh, so... I don't know if anyone is aware, hopefully you should be, but every culture throughout the world has a vampire legend or myth. From Ireland to Mongolia to Germany to Haiti, the Philippines, even Tibet, they have a vampire mythos or legend. And, uh, a lot of times there are similarities, but uh, sometimes the vampire will steal your life force. Sometimes the vampire will draw the blood out because all we all know blood is the life. And then some people will sort of take your, your breath or soul. So uh, depending on the culture itself, like which way the vampire will attain its drawing up your life energy yes he you know as far as ancient the vampire is one of the most ancient of uh ghoulish creatures you know it, it's its origins are more of a spiritual nature or etheric if you prefer mm-hmm. uh you know vampire legends go back to ancient mesopotamia uh, the there's the babylonian mil, uh, myth of I think it's pronounced Lilitu, uh, which is a which eventually arose to, uh, and gave rise to Lilith uh, mm-hmm. from Hebrew uh, legend, and uh, her daughter is the Lilu from Hebrew demonology. Lilith was considered the mother of all demons, and uh, was often depicted in uh, in uh, free, uh, wall friezes and statues of subsisting on the blood of babies. The legend of Lilith was originally included in some traditional Jewish texts, according to the medieval folk traditions. And she was considered the first wife of Adam before Eve. So, it's a, so she, uh, she was a definitely a, a uh, you know, a terrifying creature. Often, 
uh, some, you know, depicted as some sort of anthropomorphic bird-footed night demon, and uh, was described as a sexual predator who sighted on the, you know, the blood of babies and their mothers. And do you know, do you know why the Hebrew Lilith was condemned to be a vampire? Oh yes, because she was a uh, she had a preferred position of dominance <laughs> in, during lovemaking with Adam. <laughs> she was not she was not obedient, so therefore she was cursed to be a vampire. <laughs> yes, uh, the 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 ancients were not known for their endorsement of feminism and no. or women's rights. No. That's correct. Yeah. Now we yeah. have to we have to wait until we get way up into uh, Carmilla before we get into any kind of like female dominance in the vampire world. So. Yeah. And even then, it technically, they, they still killed uh, Camilla. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, there, yeah, there was the ancient Greeks. Uh, ancient Greeks, you know, also believed in a more uh, modernistic vampire. In fact, you'd argue that they were the precursor to modern vampires. Uh, these included the Ampusa, the Lamia, and uh, Strigus, or Strix, of ancient Roman mythology. These two terms became uh, general words to describe witches and demons individually. The Apusa was the daughter of the goddess Hecate. In fact, in a lot of modern fiction, Hecate is referenced as the, a god of vampires, a demonic bronze-footed creature. Uh, she feasted on blood by transforming into a young woman and, and seduced men as they slept before drinking their blood. Lamia was the daughter of King Balus and a secret lover of Zeus. Uh, yeah, so the, yeah, so there's, it, it does go really far back. I mean, the Egyptians, the ancient Greeks, uh, ancient India had the tales of the Vitalis, a ghoul-like being that inhabited corpses, and it is often found in uh, Sanskrit folklore. And some people actually believe that the Osiris was a metaphor for a vampiric being, being he was chopped into many pieces and still continued to lot to live. So, yeah. and I've got and referencing uh, Hebrew. Uh, traditions as well. The aluka, uh, which uh, literally translates to leech, <laughs> is a uh, is a vampire or you know or a vampiric creature. Uh, and it's you know or otherwise known as the the motet's dam or bloodsucker. Once again, nice literal translation there for you. Uh, later vampire traditions appear among the uh, Jews in Central Europe. In particular, the medieval interpretation of Lilith. There's actually a Aztec vampire too. That's uh, I'm going to give it a shot, but this is a sort of a little bit of a difficult name. It's a Chiua Tetua, which was a uh, spirit of women that died during childbirth became vampires. So. Yep, the, and you know, as, it, as it progressed, of course, traditions evolved, you know, and it, it, you can't go and mention vampires, of course, without going into medieval Europe, where mm -hmm. the uh, to 12th century historians and uh, chronicler, historian and chroniclers, uh, Walter Mapp and William Nedberg, uh records accounts of brevidence, uh, essentially reanimated corpses or legend of vampiric beings. Uh, are, are kind of sporadic around this time period because of, you know, they are focusing on other things like plagues, which, well, some people would argue were caused by vampires. Uh, you know, and Southern Europe, and of course, of course, Transylvania in the 18th century, which was her basis of vampire legends that later entered Germany and England. 
Uh, they were, of course, subsequently embellished and popularized. Uh, during this time in the 18th century, there was a frenzy of vampire sightings in southeastern Europe and, once again, Transylvania. With frequent stakings and grave diggings taking place to identify and kill the potential revenants, even government officials were compelled into the hunting and staking of vampires, despite being called the Age of Enlightenment. I mean, that whole area, though, that from Bulgaria to Serbia to uh, Slovakia, that whole entire area had their own vampiric legends. So everybody just has heard of Transylvania, but, you know, it's that, that whole area was rife with the undead. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, the French Enlightenment writer Voltaire and, uh, and other demonologists, believe it or not, interpreted the uh, that you know that some treaties at the time claimed that vampires actually existed. In his uh, philosophical dictionary, Voltaire wrote, "These vampires were corpses who went out of their graves at night to suck the blood of the living, either at their throats or stomachs, after which they returned to their cemeteries. The persons so sucked waned, grew pale, and fell into consumption." While the cor the sucking corpse grew fat, got rosy, and enjoyed an excellent appetite, it was in Poland, Hungary, Silesia, I'm sorry, Silesia, Moravia, Austria, and Lorraine, that the dead made this good cheer. Interesting. Well, that might be a good segue into our because I don't know how long we want to run, but you know we we could spend all day just on the the myth section, but that might be a good segue into the literature thing because uh, the beginning literature of Stoker this described Dracula as corpse-like. You know, later on we have these variations where the vampires are, you know, sex symbols, but you weren't supposed to be attracted to Dracula, as far as Stoker created him, you were supposed to be repelled, and it was your carnal, sinful nature that made you come to the undead. Mm -hmm. Yep, it, it's the it's you know Slavic Europe that really sort of contributed to the what are, you know more so what our modern interpretation of vampires are, and you know and and in fact the word comes from Uker, a uh, Slavic word you know, in Romania and that sort of thing. And there's some controversy about the existence of the the, the real word, the word that's, that Stoker used in Dracula, which is Nosferatu, uh, about whether it was a made-up word that uh, that Stoker mistranslated, although he claimed in writings that he, had, he, he got it from a book on Romania and Transylvania. And I think it's been so far embedded into the culture, you know, you're not going to tell a 85-year-old old Romanian woman that that word doesn't exist. <laughs> I did that once. It was a horrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> you still have the scars to prove it, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I actually have my copy of Man, Myth, and Magic open to the section on vampires. So I think you're... Uh, so where would you like to go next with this? I think we should start to... Uh, I mean, you know, if there's enough interest, we can come back and do an entire another volume on vampires. But I think we should probably start to 
slowly ease into the literature, which would be the first one that we knew of besides Varney the Vampire, which was a penny dreadful, would be uh, Stoker's work, Bram Stoker. <laughs> yes, it's, it's if you've actually, you know, people are familiar with the movies, of course, you know, there's been many, many Dracula movies. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think the only uh, being in literature has more been more transcribed to film is Sherlock Holmes. The uh, Dracula, a close second. Hmm. The, uh, he has appeared in, uh, like, gosh, I can't even think of uh, hundreds of movies if you count international films as well. And he's either been the main character or a side character or, you know, or part of a troupe. Everything from uh, the original Dracula from 1931, Nosferatu from 1921. And yes, I'm actually remembering these dates and names from my <laughs> mind. I'm not referencing Wikipedia right now. And, and another thing most people are not familiar with, some are, some aren't, but Dracula is one of the only books that has never been out of print. The only other one that comes to mind would be the Bible. That is correct. Well, Sherlock Holmes, too. I, I know that because I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan. <laughs> That's why I said one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a, if you're interested in uh, vampire movies, if you're a huge Dracula fan and would like to read up on that, uh, I recommend uh, Ro Robert Skull's uh, V is for Vampire, which is a great book. I think you have that, too, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yep. I do. And, uh, and if you're, of course, there's a, there's large volumes and it's like vampire encyclopedias are out there and readily available. Uh, mm -hmm. Yep. Now, Dracula is a very interesting book in that it is not written like a novel, is it? No, it's written as sort of a, a memoir, memoir or a diary. So, you know, that's starting out with the travels through the Carpathians and, and all of that. But we also, this is an important thing to recognize, Dracula is the first time we come across the stake through the heart, no reflection in mirrors, no being able to cross running water. None of these things were attributed to the vampire before Stoker. They were all sort of variations of the metaphor of good versus evil that Stoker put in there because it was sort of a nod to his religious upbringing. And uh, the metaphor for the mirror was the vampire doesn't have a soul, so therefore would not be able to be seen. Running water is pure, so of course a vampire couldn't cross water. And the stake was supposed to be a symbolic piece of the true cross that Christ was crucified on. So, yeah, it's 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 just amazing the uh, amount of attention to detail he put into it, but also the flourishes he put into the story. You know, I mean, uh, Broke, uh, Stoker is mostly responsible for our interpretation of the modern vampire. And before we even get to it, why don't we just say straight off the bat? You know, we do not even wish to talk about if we can avoid it. Those books and those movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you're talking about the the books from Utah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we do not want to talk. If we, you know, I will mention it in passing very quickly. Twilight. You know, yeah. it's just get out of the way. Vampires are are not are not uh, sparkly. <laughs> I have issues with those books. Yeah. So we'll just yeah we could we could leave it right there. Yeah. <laughs> the I'll put it this way: they're not they're not healthy reading for impressionable minds, yeah. and not because of the vampires, because of the underlying uh, dreck and like subversive nature of like the books. <laughs> yeah, I think they got uh, rid of most of that in the movies and that sort of thing, but it's it's still it's still there. But the yeah, it's it's uh, they're just uh, it's funny how people today are embarrassed by that i've you know as you know I've, I've lectured on folklore myth and legends and of course vampires come up in those those lectures and i in, in modern lectures like as in the past few years uh when i bring up those movies and i ask the group uh who you know who i will say like who has here read the twilight series and if it's a group of 100 people maybe four or five people will raise their hand. If it's a smaller group of 25, you might get one or nobody raising their hand. And I just think it's because they're embarrassed. I think most of that group did read that book when it was popular 10 years ago or more. No. I just think they're embarrassed to admit it now because they know how ridiculous that series of books is. You know, And because and because it's sort of been, been made, you know, it's like when it first came out, it was, it was the tween version of like Fifty Shades of Grey. And then later on, people sort of started putting it in, in its own little fandom category. You know, you had the Star Trek and Star Wars people, the Whovians, you know, all the rest of the, like, sci-fi and, like, fantasy crowds. You know, and somebody even made the comment one time that, you know, comparing it to Harry Potter. And they said, well, Harry Potter, you know, shows us the importance of working together against all great odds and the bonds of friendship and uh, overcoming great evil, and Twilight shows you how important it is to have a boyfriend. <laughs> well, the, the funny you should mention, and this, why don't we uh, segue into our next topic, but we'll, this is the last part we'll talk about it. Um, the uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, for those who are uninitiated, unfamiliar. Uh, oh, I know everyone, I'm sure, has heard of the movie and the books. Of course, they've not seen that. But if you do not know this, this is a fact, a true fact I'm about to tell you. Fifty Shades of Grey is Twilight fan fiction. It, it, that is literally true. The origins of that book series started as a fan fiction, uh, and all the original characters were Twilight characters. And it was, and the what happened was the author who got an enormously popular response from her BDMS, BDSM version of Twilight, decided to change the names, remove the vampire aspects, and rewrite it as Fifty Shades of Grey. That's a true story. That Fifty Shades of Grey is actually based on Twilight fan fiction. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I probably don't like either one. So. <laughs> okay, so moving on. Yeah, so Dracula is actually a um, a series. If you read the novel, and I highly recommend you doing so. You, you you will understand what's going on. It's not so dated that you have trouble translating the the uh, 
vernacular from the time period. No, but just be aware that it will take you a little bit to get through the word usage and the formality of the speaking. But it, yeah, but it does it's make well sense. It's well worth, yeah. It's well worth the effort, though. The uh, Dracula is written as a collection of diary, journal notes uh, from the main characters of the book, newspaper articles, and so on and so forth. Um, it's inter- I think I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there's only one part in the entire book that's actually directly written from Dracula, as in someone uh, copied it, basically. Yeah. And it's it's uh it's interesting to look at it because I, you know, as you know, I'm also me and Vlad are also performers, and we often work together. Uh, and the one of the shows we did is called Vla- uh, Dracula's Descendant. In which the you character- almost you almost said Vlad's descendant. There. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to hint at anything, yeah. but uh, Dracula's <laughs> descendant, in which we imply that the book is a collection of true stories that have been uh, disguised as fiction because of by Bram Stoker, and that the events actually happened. And if you have a very good imagination, a lot of creativity, you can read that book and get carried away by the prose. The book is definitely written to make you believe that these events happened in London and Transylvania. Now, of course, uh, uh, Stoker did get his main character's name from, take it away, Vlad. Vlad Sipish, or Vlad the Impaler. That is correct. Who, who he claims that he went through the pamphlet that was released shortly after Vlad's death, like the woodcut pamphlet that was uh i believe published in germany but uh he believes that he claimed that a lot of the information was from that well the saving grace of that is there were very few copies available outside of museums so nobody could say he was wrong so that's correct you know the you know the the word nosferatu and uh there is a great uh book written the in search of dracula Mm-hmm. Uh, which is written in the 1970s, I believe. By, by McNally and Florescu. That's correct, yep. And they are, and he actually spent the night at Dracula's castle in, in Wallachia, or Transylvania uh, today. Uh, and, you know, they said they, they may have, they believe they may have even experienced a paranormal experience there. They saw a ball of light move through the forest. You know, so... I would love to spend a night at Dracula's castle. That is, yeah. a, that is a on my bucket list for sure. Maybe maybe we can get a sponsor to send us there. Yes, if you're listening and you like, this, <laughs> we will we will host your event in uh, Transylvania. If you'd like to sponsor a murder mystery event at Dracula's castle, which is we, definitely we, something that could be done with the proper funding. <laughs> we we do have valid passports, so we're ready to go. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Uh, so. Where would you like to go next with this, Vlad? I suppose the next, you know, we have right after that is, uh, well, around the same time period. We have, uh, I mean, well, let me skip over one thing to backtrack a little bit. A lot of, a lot more authors have written vampire works. One, one that probably would surprise people is uh, Tolstoy. Tolstoy wrote four or five different vampire stories one of which was actually taken and made into a film done by Mario Bava, which was Black Sunday, uh, with uh, Boris Karloff. And this is the character of the Verdolak. 
who was a vampire that could only exist by feasting on the blood of those he loved. So there was no roaming the streets, attacking everyone. It was a uh, close-knit family thing. If you were loved by the family, you were eaten by the family. So that's correct. You know the <laughs> the it is the it is a, a very uh, horrible, horrifying. Not horrible. It's actually an excellently done movie and story. It's a very horrifying story, though. You know the uh, Black Sunday is one of the first uh, horror movies I've ever. I ever watched and it is a is a very engaging and dramatic story and Karloff has had his best in that movie uh, so I highly I do highly recommend watching that this it is it, it, one of the best things about it of course it actually supports traditional vampire lore mm-hmm. you know, vampire there's many stories of vampire uh, vampires attack the family first uh, there's uh, and, and I remember one off the top of my head I think in which a, uh, a father went away on a long journey, came back, and pretty much ate his entire family. <laughs> they were lords of the land, and he, you know, the the father came back. The uh, he would turned out he was a vampire. He, he insisted that he be invited into the location, and uh, he, he went about, uh, you know, vampirizing the rest of the family there. Well, it's hard to eat just one. That's right. They're like Pringles. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so we have that. We have uh, Tolstoy, and then we also have which we start to get into books. You know, there are many different in betweens, but the next notable one would probably be uh, Anne Rice's series, mm-hmm. which many people think you know is the beginning of sexuality in the vampire, which is way before that, because as we mentioned in uh, the mythos. The vampire is supposed to be a disgusting corpse that you wouldn't want to talk to. And we jump into the films and we have Lugosi, Lee, Langella, and Oldman, all which were portrayed as sort of sex symbols. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the thing about, like, you know, people saying, oh, well, Anne Rice is the first time that there was a sort of same sex discussion with vampires, which is not true because earlier than that was Carmela. That's right. So you want to talk about Carmela a little bit? Well, there's not too much I mean other than, you know, you I mean, I just basically know the story, so it's like I don't really know too much detail other than it is the friend of a young girl that dies and comes back and wishes her to join there. <laughs> so That's right. You know. Yep, it was a very fraternity. So yeah. Very controversial at the time, of course. Well, it was sort of the Lolita of vampire stories, mm-hmm. you know. But but we have, and then we jump into, you know, the you know we we won't address the Twilight things anymore. But uh, we have the Anne Rice series, which a lot of people, you know, Vince had mentioned that, uh, you know, the Dracula is very descriptive as far as scenery and things like that, and that was some of the complaints people have of. Anne Rice's book is that there was way too much time spent on descriptions of the atmosphere and the history and things like that. But there's quite a lot of time spent on the sexuality too. So, you know, but the important thing is like that, you know, it just was sort of accepted by, you know, 
most people before those books was that uh, vampires were creatures of habit and of circumstance. So it's not like they, you know, it's like they, if, they, if there was a female or a male available to uh, be dinner, they would take of either one. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was they were, they would take advantage of whichever situation came around. So, You're opportunistic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, some people think, oh, well, no, it was a decidedly difference. Well, it was a decidedly difference. And as far as I remember, that was the first broaching of a sort of vampiric family. I don't remember any other books before that that really sort of brought about a... There were vampire clans, but Louis Lestat and uh, Claudia sort of were basically a little vampire family. And I think that was like sort of probably in most people's minds, they go, well, but she had two dads. And it's like, okay. Uh, and they were all vampires. So, you know. You know. But who's to say? Yeah. <laughs> we read into these things what we need to read into them. So where to next in our exploration? I guess it's time to go into Hollywood, isn't it? I guess because we're otherwise we're going to be we're trying to lightly touch on all of these things. If you'd like us to go back and touch on them in greater detail, we can. But I didn't want to just touch on one one area and have somebody go, "Oh, well, how come you didn't talk about films?" So, but now we would jump into Hollywood or actually pre Hollywood if we're going to talk about Nosferatu, which was the uh, retelling of Dracula without permission. So, with with Max Schreck as the vampire himself, um, that was done. That was done very quickly and sort of quietly. And they attempted at one point in time to do away with all of the prints of it because it was done without permission from the Stoker Estate. That's correct. Lucky for us, of course, that the the uh, they survived. Otherwise, we would have been like sort of piecing things together like we do with London After Midnight, you know, and sort of trying to make a flip book sort of film with stills that were from it because that film is gone, probably never to be seen. So, yeah. So then we jump into Lugosi or the 1931 Dracula, which was pretty much, as far as I can tell, the first sexualizing of a vampire character and making him a suave, endearing, like, fairly good-looking gentleman. Um, The weird thing was, that was, which most people don't realize, the movie was released at the height of the Great Depression. And it it did phenomenally well when people were struggling to have something to eat they went to the box office and went to go see a vampire film. Yes, you will experience the terror of artworks. <laughs> so, so they were going there to see that. And another little trivia piece is that at the same time that Dracula was being shot, 
the Spanish version of Dracula was being shot at at night on the exact same sets. Oh, that's right. Yes, I remember that. And, and to be perfectly honest with you, if you, uh, the, I had to be honest, although Bela Lugosi is the definitive Dracula, for, by all accounts, the, his haunting voice, his, you know, his mannerisms, the in a way he uh, portrays Dracula, I had to tell you that it, it is a, you, if you have any sort of appreciation for cinema, and the drag the vampire genre in general you should really try to watch the spanish language version i, I something about that has definitely has more passion in it it's a it's a it's better it's it's more well done than the actual 1931 dracula that we're all familiar with in my opinion well i think i think one of the things we both have discussed is that i think the actors took it there were very few, aside from Lugosi and some of the other characters, that like in Dracula and Frankenstein, that both that sort of took the films seriously. They both sort of like the main characters took things seriously. Some of the other people were sort of just putting the hours in. They didn't really, you know, I think they thought that that type of a film was beneath them. It's true. The uh, but the uh, the the Latin actors who portrayed the same characters, except at night, uh, of the uh, you know Dracula characters from the book, they did it with such uh, reverence for the characters and what in the Bram Stoker. Uh, story you just you can see that portrayed and I do recommend if you're not if you do not speak Spanish to watch it with subtitles the dub yeah. is the modern dub is okay uh, but the if you if you can tolerate the subtitles it's definitely worth it well you always get you you know with subtitles you always get the inflection in the wording of the what is the actor is giving you if it's dubbed it's not you're getting a secondary person sort of telling you what the actor was saying and it's not the same emotion that the actor put into the performance mm -hmm. so. yep the yeah it is one of the best movies best vampire movies you'll see in general and one of the best dracula films you know so there so the uh, that was really kicked off the uh universal horror movie craze of the 1930s and 40s more than mm -hmm. anything else you know, it went, it went from Dracula to Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the creature from the Black Lagoon, the Mummy, and so on and so forth. All kind of uh, the original cinematic universe. In Invisible Man. That's right. The oh, yeah, the Invisible Man and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yep. Yep, there was another universal one. And they all died with Abbott and Costello. That's right. <laughs> yep. I think even there was a Jekyll and Hyde Abbott and Costello movie, if not mistaken. Yep, there was. There was a Mummy one, a Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, Frankenstein and you know Dracula's in with Frankenstein. The Wolfman's in that one too. They never did one. I don't know how. I guess they didn't think of how to work it in. I'm surprised they never tried to do one with Creature of the Black Lagoon. Except for, you know, he's a creature and he's chasing us. So I figured. I think they thought that there was like very little storyline in there. Yep. I don't know. 
So as far as as far as like the memorable characters of Dracula, I think I think we have to like pretty much acknowledge that there are four main Draculas that were are the icons of the character. We have Lugosi, Lee, Langella, and Oldman. I think those are those are the four that portrayed for history the top of the lists of Draculas. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. You know, the uh, there there is definitely uh, many many Draculas out there. You know, the uh, many people have portrayed Dracula over the years, but those are the ones that you know have uh, have uh, engraved the image of Dracula into the consciousness of popular culture more than anyone else. I mean, the uh, Dracula, the nineteen thirty one Dracula with Bela Lugosi. Uh, was uh, toothless <laughs> for all intents mm. and purposes. There was there was not a drop of blood represented in the entire film. Dracula had no fangs. It was all simply implied that he stabbed fangs into his victims and drank their blood. Mm-hmm. He, uh, they, it wasn't until <clears throat> the quintessential Hammer film, Horror of Dracula. What year was that, by the way? I forgot. Uh, Seven. 70 something I think it was earlier Uh, yeah pretty sure I'm looking up now yes it was uh, Horror of of Dracula uh, is what it was referred to uh, in the states Uh, it was simply called Dracula in its native Britain Mm -hmm. Uh, it was directed by Terrence Fisher and written by Jimmy Sangster and it was written it was actually filmed and uh, premiered in 1958 Huh. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I definitely knew it was the, the 70s brought forth the uh, Dracula AD films. Uh, yeah, and then we then we jump into Langella, and we also, I mean, this is, it's hard to find, but it's well worth watching. It was a BBC production that was with a gentleman named Louis, Louis Jordan that did Dracula that was pretty good. I, I would suggest pretty much staying away from Jack Palance's Dracula, because... It wasn't really. <laughs> if you need to say it, you need to say it. But uh, I would say spend the time hunting down the Louis Jordan one versus uh, versus Jack Palance. But, yeah. And then we also have Blackula and Scream Blackula Scream. Oh, that's right. I do want to talk about a little trivia for the uh, horror of Dracula, by the way. Okay. At the end of the film, you know, if, you're, if everyone's familiar with it, Dracula's destroyed. Uh, when when uh, Peter Cushing's uh, Dr. Van Helsing f- uh, brings open the window shades and allows the sunlight to come in while simultaneously holding two uh, candlesticks together to form a makeshift crucifix. Uh, Christopher Lee's Dracula is, is uh, peeling away <laughs> on the floor uh, in which his, his uh, skin is crumbling into dust and so on and so forth. Now, as he's perishing, for those who may have not taken notice to the uh, this, he ha- he is dying on an inlaid zodiac wheel, which is on the floor. All right, if you if you never noticed this before, on which that zodiac wheel there are several quotes in Latin and Greek. The inner circle in Greek has a quote, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce this. All right, a quote from Homer's Odyssey. The English translation is this. Uh, 
The mind of men who live on the earth is such as the day the father of gods had met, Zeus, brings upon them. Hmm. The outer wheel is written in Latin and is a quote from the Hesiod uh, via Bartolomeo Anglico. All right. And it's a, uh, and you know, I, I do know how to read Latin, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. And earth first bare starry heaven equal to herself to cover her on every side and to be an ever sure abiding place for the blessed gods. Hmm. Dracula's ring is left on a glyph of the sign of Aquarius, the zodiac wheel. That's, you know, I think that's interesting little, uh, extra thing to throw into the film like that it's just it's amazing the attention to detail they put into it well you know those films were you know now there's for some reason a you know a lot of Hollywood stars look down on horror films I mean a lot of studios like you know Hammer and Pinewood Studios and you know the Amicus films and things like that horror films were bread and butter you know, you, you didn't spoof them as much as Hollywood. It was just sort of, you know, do the films. That's what we're doing. We're here to do the films, you know. Yep. The, um, you know, Horror of Dracula, of course, was the first film to uh, actually have, you know, the first vampire film that actually portrayed blood and fangs. Mm-hmm. It was the first. It was the first time you really saw, uh, you know, the piercing of the flesh and that sort of thing. Later, Dracula films had, you know, really went up on the gore. When he was res- resurrected, there would there would be slit throats and bubbling blood, and, and, and low cut and low cut bodices. Oh yes, and yes, and nudity. <laughs> to be honest yeah. with you, there was there was real nudity in in the uh, in the Dracula films. You know, there was a thing that happened. Uh, they they definitely uh, you know try to take it up a notch in order to entice uh, viewers to their films. Now, even though it was several films later, isn't that the same zodiac wheel that shows up in the uh, when they try and resurrect Dracula with the ashes from like satanic rites of Dracula? You mean know, the one inlaid on the floor? It's, it's yeah, a, yeah. I don't think I think it's it meant to be a throwback to that but i don't think it's the same one well so i think they were like trying to hearken it back to it that's what oh yeah like, that's right yeah. yes definitely a yeah. reference yeah because yeah. you have all the hippies or something that like they're they're the vampire cult that wants to resurrect dracula you know it's yeah, that's what i remember hippies yeah. being all about is resurrecting demons <laughs> yeah that's 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 the big thing that was at woodstock don't you know <laughs> <laughs> oh boy don't don't touch the brown acid because the demons have been in it. So <laughs> that's right. It's the uh, that's that's what they call that uh, acid flashbacks or something like that. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's it's that's actually always been you know vampires because yep. of that. So now we know. Yeah. So where to next? What is our what is our next on our uh, foray? Well, I think we're I think we're still we're still in film. I think. But, oh um, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have like, do we want to? Stroll through some of the like popular things. Like we have Buffy, Blade, Underworld, Near Dark, Lost Boys. 
Well, there's, let's talk about the, before we get into that, because that's a good segue there, is the different types of vampires. Besides the uh, folklore and the cultural references, there are types of vampires. There are the traditional vampires in reference, that often reference an ancient myth, mm-hmm. are more spiritualistic, etheric. The, the uh, many references would uh, imply that the corpse remain in the grave and the vampiric, etheric essence of the vamp, the, the, uh, the corrupted soul of the former human would essentially make its way up through the, the dirt and soil and then attack the villages as a, uh, like a uh, invisible ghost. And that's, and I think that's where a lot of people sort of have thrown the nod to that into the vampire films, where, you know, Dracula turns to mist. Mm-hmm. So but, yeah, exactly. In fact, that's that's actually referenced in the book as well. The, uh, but in modern interpretations, they have, and I'm not sure what you can actually find the source of this specifically. There's there's definitely a few of them. The vampires become more physical and that's probably due to the limited special effects technology to some degree and possibly also to a lack of creative writing and what i mean by that is that the uh, it's it's just the supernatural aspects of vampires are cherry-picked occasionally you know they're, they're definitely had more powers before but also more interesting weaknesses so, you know if you remember the old myth about poppy seeds and vampires the uh, i have a vampire hunting kit i got off of ebay that has poppy seeds in it because poppies uh, vampires supposedly had ocd if you sprinkled poppy seeds around your house they would be compelled to count each and every one of them well isn't that the same sort of uh was it fairies or fairies or banshees or leprechauns that if you throw if you throw rice down on the floor they're they're they need to count it that's correct yep same principle you know there's there's many uh, incidences incidences of similar effect in different cultures around the world in reference to vampires so vampires have become less supernatural in modern movies you know they're often portrayed as disease as opposed to uh, a supernatural element. They they, ha- they carry a vampire virus, sort mm-hmm. of more like Romero's zombies, you know, but with uh, more uh, brain, cap- you know, <laughs> more intellectual capabilities. Uh, well, and that's that's the way they are. And was it Thirty Days of Night? Yes. And more feral, and you know, more more along the lines of like what is it, Twenty Eight Days Later, mm-hmm. or where it's a it's a virus versus you know just being undead <laughs> well let's take a moment to analyze the the but what is more practical all right so th- never mind the fact that magic and vampires uh you know don't exist at least that's what vlad wants you to believe um <laughs> <laughs> the the uh these are, not at, the, these are not the vampires you're looking for that's right <laughs> <laughs> um let's look at the practicality of it i think a lot of uh folklore myth were better thought out than Hollywood. You know, uh, I've often complained about werewolves being depicted in the film as having their entire skeletal system and muscular structure rearranged in order to transform into a giant werewolf monster, as opposed to actually more accurate to folklore, 
Wolfman from 1940s Universal Horror Film. Uh, for example, a supernatural vampire had more limitations, believe it or not. They, although you would argue that they are more mystical and more powerful, they were actually more limited. Uh, folklore implies that vampires, the spiritual vampires, the supernatural ones, were, of course, uh, subject to the power of garlic. If you, hang, if you hung garlic cloves outside your house, it repelled you. Uh, crucifixes and things like that. Uh, symbolism of good uh, would prevent a vampire from you know, coming into your home. You had to invite them in, for one thing. That's a classic tradition there with several European cultures. Um, they are also limited by uh, things like uh, iron, cold iron. Uh, the uh, you know, so even of course, hot iron. Of course, that repels most people. <laughs> yeah. um, and a few other things. So the so they were they definitely had their limitations to them. Um, but I, but I think the garlic goes back to the same way as like silver or the water that it's a symbol of purity. Exactly. So therefore. You know, it's they, the vampires can't come in, in contact with it. But and, and they were single-minded in folklore and myth. You didn't have to worry yeah. about uh, the <clears throat> the vampire council that rules the no. secretly rules the world. Yeah. Now think about it: if vampires were like they are inter- uh, referenced in movies and cinema, they would be the uh, the higher predator. They would be the the top of the tier in the uh, food chain uh, over over mankind. Why we if, if realistically any film should portray them as essentially ruling the world, uh, you know, blatantly as opposed to in the shadows. Realistically, if they were super strong, super fast, and only had to worry about coming out during the daytime in many films. Once again, an invention by Bram Stoker that they're destroyed. In, well, actually, that's not even true. That was 1921's Those Feratu that created the whole. Destroyed mm-hmm. by sunlight thing. Before they were weakened by sunlight yep. in folklore and myth, and in fact, even Dracula by Bram Stoker, they weren't destroyed by sunlight until 1921. Those But the problem with that is that if you have a hundred vampires in one room, you're, you're you're sort of like saying that the apex predators. There's going to always be. Have one, have one that uh, wants to be the apex predator of apex predators. Oh yeah, so they really can't. They can't really get along that well. <laughs> it's much like having a whole, a whole conversation about bizarre on the Magic Cafe. They don't. <laughs> they just don't. Sometimes they just don't all get along. So. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, it always disappoints me that the, the supernatural magic aspect, yeah, the uh, supernatural magic aspect is is dismissed so frequently in modern vampire films. It, and they seem to not really, um, they can't really decide which they want to use, and they try to use both too often. For example, you mentioned Blade earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the movie Blade, it is hinted that it's a virus that... It's uh, it's the blood of the vampires put under a microscope. Blade is analyzed. He has a uh, essentially a prescription drug, <laughs> for all, for lack of a better term, of a vampire plasma substitute that allows him to uh, not have to drink the blood of humans. Um, and it's this is all very scientific, you know, in a way. And yet 
they nevertheless, at the end of the film, have this supernatural element with vampire ghosts flying out of a ancient god's tomb, yeah. and and you know giving supernatural powers to the main uh, antagonist of the film. So, it, it, it a lot of movies fall into this trap where they try to combine science with uh, magic and sorcery and things like that. It, well, they uh, did the same. They did the same thing in Underworld. And well, in, in a non-vampire movie, Hellboy, they did the same thing in that too. Yeah, but yeah, they they you know vampires can have supernatural powers to some degree, and yet they're supposed to be explained by a sci- a sciency sort of sounding vampire virus, yeah. you know, a pathogen, if you will, that is you know spread through, uh, you know, blood sharing. You know, different movies interpret it differently. Some movies simply by being bit by the vampires enough, such as in the the heart, the Hammer films. While in others, you have to share the blood. You know, I drink from you, you drink from me. Now we're both vampires. Like in Lost Boys. That's correct. You know, yeah. drink out of this bottle of wine. Like, oh, those are nice maggots you're eating there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a one of my favorite all-time vampire films, but it, but but Lost Boys was actually more of a supernatural vampire. To be honest with you, it didn't have any. They didn't try to throw science at you by saying it's a virus, it's a contagion. That no, they just said this is this is magic vampire blood. We have supernatural yeah. powers and and so on and so forth. Yeah. So it is. Uh, that is one of my. But I think a lot of it. I think a lot of it, like where they. Uh, want to sort of blend these things it's like sometimes they run into the problem about well how do we sneak the sexuality in there you know and it's like okay you know because <laughs> sex sells so you know that's you got to throw that in there which is a large segment of uh true blood was well we got to get the sex in here so <laughs> let's build build the story around some sex so <laughs> but true blood was another example of of course, the you know a a, seer, a vampire story that mixes science with the supernatural, and they, they eventually at some point they had fairies and werewolf, yeah. you know, shape shifting creatures and ghosts. witches and ghosts and everything else. Uh, you know, after trying to imply that in, in the beginning, the first season or, or the first series of books too, they implied that oh, we're we're science-based monsters, you know. We're we ha- it's a it's a disease that we have. It's it, you know, they try to compare it to AIDS, basically. And the and but later on, they just kind of like ah, what the hell? Let's throw that out the window. And now we're we're magic beings that can and some of us can fly and yeah, you know, so on and so forth. It's just it's just like you can't, they want their cake and they want to be able to eat it too all the time. Well, and you get like other ones that are there's two two like independent or sort of you know art house films that some people probably have never heard from one of the, one of them is called the addiction and the other one is a girl walks home at night and they sort of get into the whole thing about drugs and you know sort of a metaphor for the addiction of blood being compared to a drug addiction so you know you can sort of take it any any way you i suppose the vampire world can be analyzed any way you seek to analyze it you know yeah which is odd and unusual <laughs> so where to next find- my, fr- my friend uh did you want to talk about like you know that most people don't don't actually know that there isn't an, an actual 
world of vampires? Oh yes, there, there's definitely people who believe they are real vampires. Now, there's two sides to this before we get into the, the topic. There are those who are human beings and they acknowledge the fact that they are human beings. So you, some, many of them believe that they, there is a supernatural element. Some of them think they are psychic uh, vampires, while others believe they are sanguinarians, people who actually uh, live off the blood of, uh, or not live off of, they eat regular food too, but they get extra power from the blood of others. Well, not necessarily extra power. It's like a lot of them believe that it's a requirement. It's part of something that is missing in their DNA or their mineral body makeup that can only be achieved through ingesting blood. Now there is a, there's also a group of people that believe, uh, this goes back to the, uh, the disgraced priest of the late 19th century, early 20th century, Matthew Summers, who wrote uh, Van The Vampire is Kith and Kin. Uh, that believe that vampires are in fact real. There actually are supernatural vampires in the world who live in the shadows and attack the living. There's there's actually been reports over the years of vampire attacks, and many people think that murders, unsolved crimes, were actually committed by vampires, and they disguise them as heinous acts of a serial killer. So that, those are the two aspects of, of the uh, real vampires in the world. So I, we should probably discuss the people who think they are vampires first. So, so what do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> in, the well, vamp, in the vampire community, okay, we'll break it down. In the vampire community, which, yes, I'm still part of, um, we can break them down into categories. We have people that are what are considered lifestylers, which means that they like to go to vampire events and dress up and don't consider themselves vampires, but like to sort of they're like vampire cosplayers. They like the trappings of it. They like to socialize with the vampires, but they do not themselves consider themselves vampires. So those are lifestylers. Then you get blood fetishists, which cross over into the BDSM thing, where blood is more of a sexual kink. And through cutting or sexual foreplay, they are turned on by blood. Then you get people that are considered sanguine, which means that Anybody that I know that has ever gotten into this was within a committed relationship. So they weren't just running around like biting people on a subway. They were using medical instruments and lancets and things like that to share blood within a committed relationship. Now committed could be defined amongst two people in a couple or one person that was a medical screen donor that would be shared amongst them. So those would be considered sanguine. Now you also have people that are considered chronic or energy vampires, which means that they do not believe in sanguine means, but they believe that they need to exchange energy with a person 
and they get a kick from the energy of a person. I've, I've drawn metaphors to that, to the being that most actors would fall into that category because in even in Uta Hagen's work, she talks about there's no greater accolades than the, the energy of the crowd and your, your audience. Well, if you're building the energy up in an audience and you're giving them energy and then they are also exchanging energy with you, that would fall in the lines of a pranic exchange to me. So those are the main categories of the actual like vampire community. Yep. So there, there's there's also a, a culture associated with it of, of varying degrees depending on what you you know what uh, to associate yourself with. There's, how far how far down the rabbit hole you want to go? That's right. There's there's books <laughs> written on it. Uh, uh, there's uh, uh, what Michelle Belanger has written mm-hmm. a. Uh, a couple of books on uh, vampire culture and how to act and behave and you know and keep your anonymity uh, because you definitely it's it's you know you will be lower than likely ostracized if you you know engage in blood drinking or go around telling people that you are a vampire well it's the same thing as a renaissance fair most people at the renaissance fairs never give anybody their real name because uh, you know, what goes on at a Renaissance Fair stays at a Renaissance Fair. So they just don't want people to know their true names. So, yeah. It's, it's, so there's there's definitely uh, a proper way of uh, being a hematomaniac hmm. <laughs> uh, rather than uh, just going around biting people. You know, there's, there's definitely uh, recommended ways for those who do that sort of thing of how to approach people, how to, uh, you know, properly claim the blood and how much to take and where Safeguard, to... Safeguard and etiquette. Yes. Never do anything without someone's permission. That's even, that's like attempting to access energy or sort of poking them with a lancet like you don't do that without a testing someone or b like getting their permission <laughs> permission first <laughs> yeah so so yeah the so there is definitely a vampire uh you know subculture subculture in america and one of the inter- several places uh you know in which that culture permeates above others you know one of the more popular places for that is of course new orleans the, new uh, orleans new orleans new york baltimore yep uh mm. <laughs> you know, buffalo apparently is a is a popular hangout london LA. In europe la yeah la that's right paris Yes, they're, in LA, of course, are metaphorical and literal vampires. There. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You have to watch where you ask for it because they may want to suck more than your book. <laughs> <laughs> suck your soul out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but there are so yeah, so there is definitely like there's vampire clubs. You know, many goth clubs are also. Uh, uh, Double no. as no, no. There's, nope. there's many vampire, <laughs> many golf clubs have separate nights for yeah. vampire clubs. Is where I was going. But they don't, they don't blend because yeah, they don't blend. Yeah, because if you, they even spoof it on South Park where uh, 
the goth kids laugh at the other ones because they're like, who would want to be a douchey vampire? So, <laughs> so yeah, the, the goths do not like believe that it's, even though all of the literature is stems from the same sources and things like that and all the other traditions, they just, you know, vampires don't want to write poetry and, you know, goths don't want to have fangs, so. Well, there's definitely many cases of people that, uh, you know, there's many cases of people that were claimed to have been by others as vampires of the more supernatural sort. You know, I I have a few examples. (laughs) Um, There is uh, Peter Blagojawicz, a Serbian villager, an accused bloodsucker, was exhumed and staked through the heart a few weeks after his death in 1725. In his book, Vampires, Burial, and Death, folklorist Paul Barber treats Plago Jowitz as the quintessential European vampire because his exhumation closely followed the broader pattern of the superstition. This man was a, uh, the first in his village to die of a sickness and subsequent local deaths were blamed on his late night uh, you know, uh, predator attacks. A uh, rather gruesome sounding autopsy revealed what was considered the telltale signs of vampirism. And it goes, here's, I quote, I did not detect the slightest odor that is otherwise characteristic of the dead and mm-hmm. the body. It was completely fresh, one witness wrote. The hair and beard had grown on him. The old skin, which was somewhat whitish, had peeled away and a new fresh one had emerged under it. Not without astonishment, I saw some fresh blood in his mouth. So, yeah. Now, is it... Is the other, the other one, the serial killer Peter Curtin? I believe that's the one where they preserved his head because he was killed by the guillotine. Didn't they split his head in half and preserve it someplace? It sounds familiar. I have to look that up. Uh, I do not okay, have yep. that in my notes right here. Uh, but there, but there have been, uh, you know, it's definitely. Speaking of which, there's, you know, uh, there definitely have been serial killers who have been referred to as vampires. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, Andre Chikatilo, Albert Fish, you know, the, the, the cannibal uh, serial killers. There's the vampire of Sacramento, uh, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the vampire what was the, uh, of uh, what German country was that? Uh, Dusseldorf. That's the one, that's the one I was just talking about, yep. Peter Curtin. That's right. Yeah, it says it says right here, mummified head of serial killer who raped and murdered girls on display after doctors cut it open to find the reason for his evil. Mm-hmm. And he, had, <laughs> he didn't help his help his uh you know defense that much with his Hitler mustache he wore. No, no. <laughs> no. Oh boy. So well, of course that was nineteen thirty one when he was executed. So. I wonder if it's still there because the picture that I just found it says Hanging from a rotating hook and mummified in a gruesome ex- expression, the head of serial killer Peter Curtin is one of the many attractions at Ripley's, believe it or not, in Wisconsin. Yep, his head was dissected and mummified. The brain was removed and subjected to forensic analysis in an attempt to explain his personality and behavior. The ex- examinations of Curtin's brain revealed no abnormalities. Hmm. The, auto- the autopsy conducted upon Curtin's body revealed that, aside from his having an enlarged thymus, uh, thymus gland, Curtin had not been suffering any physical abnormality. 
The interview is currently granted to uh, a, a one Dr. Carl Berg in 1939-31 proved to be the first psychological study conducted upon a sexual serial killer. These uh, interviews were formed the basis of Berg's book, The Sadist. And shortly after World War II, Curtin's head was transported to the United States. It is currently on display at the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum in Wisconsin, Dells, Wisconsin. Now, who do we know in Wisconsin? <laughs> Ed Gein. Uh, I mean, who do we personally know in Wisconsin? Oh, okay. Yeah. Ed Gein. <laughs> I must to hang around with a different social set. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Mr. David Parr, I would believe, someplace up in Wisconsin. Yeah, well, have they're... we have we ever seen him and any of these other serial killers in the same place? The same uh, apparently not. Yeah, <laughs> check into that. <clears throat> so, I think that we, you know, I think this is going to have to be continued in a second part because there are so many details we can go over. There's, you know, so many real life serial, uh, vampire killers, and we are definitely open to doing that. If you're interested in seeing us talk more about vampires and night creatures in general, not to mention we have not even touched on werewolves and ghouls and other creatures of the night, you know, but we will eventually have an episode, I'm sure, on shapeshifters, werewolves in particular. Demons. Uh, And a part two of vampires is definitely something that's going to have to happen because there's just too much to go over to be covered in a single episode. Uh, but I think our next episode, if I if I will be bold enough to open it up, would probably have to be an exploration into the traditions, uh, both safe and not so much, of the holiday, popularly referred to as Christmas. And 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 possibly a visitation of Krampus. <laughs> well, this, I, I was trying to save that as a surprise. <laughs> That's my vagueness, but yes, yeah, yeah the, uh, obviously the Krampus. Come on, we should be we should be not surprising them with Krampus. They should be looking forward to being beaten with birch sticks with high regard. <laughs> I'm sure at least a couple of of our <laughs> listeners would look forward to something like that. <laughs> so, then with that. I think we are concluding this week's episode. Uh, I thank my co-host and partner in crime occasionally, Vlad, <laughs> and I am Vince Wilson. And we'd like to thank you for once again listening to Magic and Murder. No, wait a minute. Let's back up a little bit. There is a couple of announcements we have to make, isn't there? There might be. Yes. So before we conclude our episode, <laughs> let's backtrack with a couple of announcements. Okay. So we, uh, Vlad and I, our next scheduled appearance is at East Coast Spirit Sessions in Myrtle Beach, North Carolina, uh, South Carolina. South Carolina. That's correct. South Carolina. Uh, Vlad lives in North, North Carolina. Carolina. It's where he often haunts anyway. So, yes, our, we'll be at East Coast Spirit Sessions Conference in Myrtle Beach. We're very excited about that. It's the weekend of Martin Luther King uh, weekend. And January January 17th through 20th. That's correct. And I'll be there a day early. I'll be there from Wednesday basically until Monday. From, you know, and, uh, and Vlad, will, I'm sure, will be there for the same period of time. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited about our the Cthulhu seance on Thursday mm-hmm. in particular because I'm hosting that. And, and uh, Vlad, what do you got planned for that weekend? I will be haunting the parlor. 
Yeah, that's right. Yes, <laughs> uh, Vlad is the quintessential parlor magician, and he is—he actually started that tradition for East Coast Spirit Sessions, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, then short, shortly after that, we have uh, the Poe event, which is the mysterious Poe event that will be uh, having the Dark Quartet. <laughs> yeah, the name of our our quartet is still a work in progress. If you have <laughs> suggestions for, it doesn't have to reference the number four necessarily. You have suggestions for a name for our uh, our four performers for the Edgar Allan Poe event in Baltimore. And I must put emphasis on this. More information is forthcoming, but I will, I can't tell you this. It will be in Baltimore. It will be the weekend of April twelfth, twenty nineteen. It will involve Edgar Allan Poe, his gravesite, and it will be hosted at the Lord Baltimore Hotel. Other than that, I can tell you, it's me, Vlad, Paul Prater, and Joseph Daniels. You know, mm-hmm. can't ask for a better group of performers and magicians, all with you know invested interest in folklore, myth, legends, and the history of Edgar Alan Poe. We will explore the mysteries of his death and other things. And I'm afraid I don't have much more information than that. That's everything I can tell you right now. More is forthcoming. It will reveal more in a future episode of Magic and Murder. And if you're going to suggest a name, we just sort of, we've already thought of the Four Horsemen and uh, <laughs> the issues involved with it now. So. <laughs> That's right. Can't, can't use that one. No. <laughs> But, uh, but yes, so, yeah, if you have any suggestions, uh, don't forget, you can download the Anchor app for your phone and go into the Anchor app and actually leave us a recorded message. And we will, if you would like to give us our permission to use it, we will include your conversation in our episode. I will edit it in to that episode, and people can hear you ask a question. Just leave your name and tell us uh, what you'd like to know. Say, hi, I'm this person, and... I would like to leave a message. Now, there's a, of course, I shouldn't say that because there was a volunteer last year's year post spirit sessions who would probably say, hi, I'm this person. And I, yeah, rephrase that. Use your real name, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, leave a message for us or go to our Facebook page and send us a message or post something. Go to Omni Fringe Radio. There's so many ways to contact us. You have no excuse for not making suggestions for our next episode. So, please, reach out to us. Let us know what you think, what you want, and we will make do our best to provide for you whatever you need. Because we want to be like Sven Gulli and be able to, you know, have mail coming in that we can read from the crypt. That's right. We have had a few suggestions from friends and a, a few private messages, but we would like to have more from our listeners. So we're up. We're still uh, trying to get this out on a more regular basis, you know, uh, preferably every couple of weeks, but. It's still a work in progress. You know, once again, follow us on Facebook. Go to anchor.fm slash magic and murder and look for Vlad yep. and Vince. All right. All right. Thank you. So, uh, yeah. After that, of course, it's that it's the SoCon event in Mattoon, Illinois. And, uh, and the home, of, home of the Mad Gasser. That's right. And the Bizarre Hauntings Conference, once again, at Lord Baltimore Hotel in Baltimore. A site, go to BizarreHauntings.com for more information. You'll see that. plenty of us there. So. Yep. Yes. All right. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And I'm Vince. And I'm Vlad. And, and we wish you. you pleasant dreams. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Magic and Murder Mysteries. For more information, go to MagicAndMurderPodcast.com. 
This has been an Omni Fringe Radio production.